good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here. No silent assassin Matt Costa. No science advisor Matt Moniz. No psychic medium Stephanie Burke. It's just me. Me by myself here and I got to transition the camera on my own. Uh, Good evening. We're here to talk about the paranormal as we are each and every Saturday night. Very excited to be broadcasting here on WBSM as well as on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com and hopefully back live on the Paranormal Radio app as well. Uh, now we were we were having some issues with that previously, but we've been able to fix that because now we have the uh, new software here at WBSM. So it makes things a lot easier for us. It, just it's a little bit of a learning curve for me because this is my first day using it. Uh, but uh, that's why we had a, a whole bunch of spots we had to run at the beginning. So in the future, I'm going to try and knock down some of those spots uh, in a different way. But we might have to take breaks during the show. I know so many of you are li- used to the podcast on the radio format that we've been using for a few years. But I don't think we're going to be able to do that anymore. We're going to have to actually take regular breaks like a real radio show. Of course, those of you listening on podcast or on the Dark Matter Digital Network later on, you won't have to worry about that because we'll we'll take that out for the podcast version. But, um, yeah, might just have to change the way that we do things live here on Saturday nights just a little bit. Go back to the old school method. Uh, but that's all right because that means we can get all kinds of new sweeps and bumpers and everything made as well. So it'll, it'll be fun. It'll add some... some uh, some spookiness back into the show, maybe. And uh, also, I want to say to everybody out there who has been used to calling in uh, when we are broadcasting during Red Sox games. Now, we only have a few weeks of the Red Sox left. Painfully, the season will be over. Uh, but if you called in on a Saturday night when we had sports playing here on WBSM, you would hear the game while you were on the phone on hold, well, that's no longer the situation. So if you call in while we have a game on and we're broadcasting the show uh, over the stream and over YouTube, well, then you'll be able to hear the actual show when you call in, which is great news. And it's really great because, you know, now if there's something happening on WBSM that you don't want to listen to, you know, whether it be a a Red Sox game or maybe a a football game if you're not a Patriots fan or any of that stuff, if you just tune into our app, if you tune into our WBSM.com stream, you're going to hear whatever's going on in the studio or whatever our other programming is that's playing alternately. So you don't like the Red Sox? You want to listen to Howie Carr? That's the way to do it. You don't like the Red Sox on a Saturday night? You want to listen to Spooky South Coast? That's the way to do it. But we're going to have a really good show tonight because uh, we're going to bring back, speaking of Kicking things a little bit old school. We're going to bring back Chris Balzano. We haven't had him on in a long time. So he's going to be joining us to give us a patented Balzano breakdown. We're going to be talking about the new Stephen King's It Chapter 2. We'll also talk a little bit about the first chapter of this this remake of the story of It. Maybe we'll even talk a little bit about the 1990 television miniseries. But we're going to talk really about how all this relates to the book. But the important thing is, is we're going to go into a deep dive about what it really means and and what are we talking about uh with some of these themes they go beyond just you know fear of clowns although that is a big part of it it goes beyond that we'll get into all that coming up with chris in just a few moments Uh, before we get going into the meat of the show i want to let everybody know that we're going to be announcing in the next couple of days a few spooky adventures that you can come on with us Uh, Coming up this fall, we're going to have a return to a couple of our favorite places. 
uh, I believe on October 11th, which is a Friday night, if I have my date right, but it's it's a Friday night, the second Friday in October, we'll be heading back to Wareham for Haunted History Night at the Fearing Tavern, the Old Methodist Meeting House, the Union Chapel, and the, uh, the One Room Schoolhouse. So we're going to have an event there to raise money for the Wareham Historical Society. And uh, we really, really love being able to go there and check out, you know, my hometown, Hans, but also, you know, to help support the Historical Society. Things get tough uh, for historical societies these days because people just aren't going out there and taking the tours and spending the money and they're not getting as much government grants and all of that. So we're always happy to be able to help out just a little bit. And then coming up on the, I believe it's the 19th, the third Saturday of the month, uh, I'll be heading up to North Andover to the Parson Barnard House, which, as you know, you know, we always said it was related to the Salem Witch Trials because it was the home of one of the accusers of the Salem Witches. Well, as we've come to find out through research, that it's actually Thomas Barnard was not one of the accusers. He was actually trying to defend those who were accused of witchcraft. So we'll be there again, as we did last year with the event that we call the Exoneration. We'll be there again trying to clear his good name. So you can check out both of those events. We will have those up for sale on our website coming up uh, in the next couple of days. But we're going to keep the ticket prices a little bit lower than what we would normally do because we know that it's you know it's uh, it's it's hard for people to spend uh, a lot of money to be able to go out and, and and do these kind of events. And we'll see if maybe we can co- create like a combo ticket, a combo package as well that can even take it down a little bit. But um, plan on these being far less than uh, than the usual price. But hopefully we can still make nice donations to uh, each of those. And uh, one other thing that I want to talk about, we'll bring Chris on uh, right now to discuss this. We'll bring on Chris Balzano. Uh, Chris, are you with us? Yeah, I'm here. How are you doing, Tim? Oh, spooktacular. How about yourself? Great. Great to be back. Great to be back. Always. I haven't been on since Art Bell's Memorial. I wow. Figured out. Why? See, we just got to get you a really good setup at your house and then fix everything here so that we can connect back over Skype. And then you can just co-host from from where you live. Anytime you need. I'm a lonely, lonely man on Saturday night. So Me too, most uh, of the time. The, the, crew, now, so. the crew dumps out on me all the time. So I could, I could certainly <laughs> use another friend in the night. Uh, but before we get into the, the discussion tonight, the main discussion, uh, I don't know if you saw this news, but our friend Lauren Coleman uh, put out today on social media that he had, um, he had suffered a, a stroke earlier this week oh my word yeah he's he's no, okay uh he says that his speech is starting to come back um that he you know he had some issues earlier in the week but that uh you know he's starting to make a, a recovery from it but uh he's going to be stepping back from some of his planned appearances as a result of this obviously but uh just a, a scary moment to to see that you know um to to see something happen to a guy who means so much not only to the world of cryptozoology, but also to the world of everything Bridgewater Triangle as well. Yeah, he just seems such a figure that you know he's always been there and always will be there. So that's spook. That's 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 scary, and I and I hope that he has a, a speedy recovery. The other thing too is there's so much Bridgewater Triangle stuff happening lately. I guess Ghost Brothers uh, has a new have a new show, and last night they were investigating a place in the Bridgewater Triangle. Did you see anything about this? No, no, I, I, I honestly don't catch much. Uh, I don't even have cable, so I don't get much ghost TV and and uh, the words of those things. So, well, where I, were they in the triangle? They were in Whitman, and uh, from my understanding, I haven't watched the episode yet um, because I try to, you know, not consume all of these different paranormal shows. 
because yeah. you know trying to trying to work, then we don't want to like really. Um, I don't want to say be. In, uh, let's just say be influenced by. I almost right. said you know we don't want to you know steal or crib ideas, but it's not it's not an intentional thing. It's more of a you just get influenced by these other shows and you say well this show did it like this so we should do it like that. Uh, so I try to ignore uh, a lot of what goes on in these TV shows, but um, this was brought to my or attention. The exact opposite, like they do something and you're so annoyed by it that you want to do the exact opposite as opposed to keeping like an open mind. The uh, downside, though, of some of these is that they play fast and loose with the facts. <laughs> no. And I'm not talking about the, 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 the paranormal facts. I'm talking just the historical facts, uh, as you know, because, you know, I remember you being on Paranormal State by phone. <laughs> right. And, uh, and, and the whole thing with, the, what was it, blueberries or strawberries appeasing strawberry. puckwudgies? The strawberry controversy, yeah. That's, you know, just out of left field. Some producer, if I remember right, was that, did you tell them to try that? No, no. what happened was, is, is, uh, you know, they called me up uh, to talk about that case. 1420 WPSM, New Bedford. That's, uh, that's going to happen. Oh, no problem at all. I love it. Um, and I, don't, I don't know how to stop me, those. They, <laughs> they asked me if uh, how to get rid of a puck wedgie, and I responded, you know, get rid of a puck wedgie. Like, you really can't. And I, I went off on, you know, what, the, what a puck wedgie was and why you couldn't get rid of it. And then they said, could you plant a strawberry bush? And I went, could you plant a strawberry bush? And I said why that wasn't a good idea, but I'm like, well, I guess, yeah. I mean, it's not going to hurt anything. And so the way they edited it was kind of like, I call it the, the sneakers thing, you know, like my name is my passport. They edited what I had together word for word so that on the air I said, yes, plant a strawberry bush. And that became part of uh, Puckwudgie lore. So now everyone, every website that talks about Puckwudgie says, you know, you have to, you have to, if you want to get rid of this horrible beast, you must plant strawberries and make strawberry shortcake and play with strawberry shortcake dolls and, and all this good stuff. So it's, it's interesting to see how that evolved. And uh, from everything that I understand, it, it, it doesn't work. No, no. It, it, <laughs> it's, it's, not to mention the fact that there's not really a, a, a need to repel puck wedgies because they pretty much don't get involved as humans. And unless you come across them, and then it's just territorial. Do strawberries grow in this area? I don't even know. Um, in the Cape, they must have because, you know, God loved strawberry bread. So at some point, maybe pre-cranberry, uh, strawberries were, were uh, a major food crop of the, of the South Coast. I don't know. I know we have blueberries everywhere, but I, I, didn't, I wasn't sure about strawberries. But anyway, you know, so that's, that's kind of an example of what they do with some of the facts when it comes to the, especially the Bridgewater Triangle. So I guess last night's episode of whatever the name of the show is with the Ghost Brothers, uh, they made reference to Whitman being part of the South Coast. Okay. At which case, I'm like, well, we've been covering all the wrong towns here on WBSM because we don't go as far north as Whitman. Uh, Whitman is not part of the South Coast. Anybody out there that's that's uh, watching or listening to this and is wondering that, it's um, it's probably about 35, 40 miles from here. And it's on the the far, like, northwestern side of the Bridgewater Triangle. So it's not right. like it's even 
close to any of the stuff around here. It's not close to Rehoboth or Seekonk or New Bedford or any of these stories that you hear from this area. It's um, it's kind of way out there where we have far less Bridgewater Triangle stories to uh, to deal with. And I, and I think that those words just become synonymous with each other. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, the South Coast, the Bridgewater Triangle, like people who are anywhere outside of that. And by outside of that, I mean, you know, me even being from, you know, Metro Boston area. Yeah, that's all one place, right? Like that. So it's easy to confuse that. But if you're out there and you're like producing stuff and sending information out, you probably should check a little bit more. I'm, uh, I'm just going to kind of put my head into the way that this might have worked, what I think the procedure might have been. So I think that somebody, some producer, some researcher uh, was hired to work on this show and started digging around and looking into people uh, related to the Bridgewater Triangle. From what I understand, they had Chris Pittman on, which is a good get. If you're going to have mm-hmm. somebody to talk about the Bridgewater Triangle, there's there's two guys to go after. One's, both of them are named Chris, but only one of them still lives in the area. So Chris Pittman being... Um, you know, still local. They they bring him on, and I guess he was part of the show. So that shows that they did some pretty decent research, at least in, in that regard. But the fact that they mentioned that it was the South Coast makes me wonder, how much spooky South Coast did they consume in trying to uh, come piece together some of their, their facts about the Bridgewater Triangle? They must have... They must have associated this show somehow with with the the Pukwudgie and the paranormal uh, Bridgewater Triangle rather phenomenon. Do you? I mean, I would be kind of interested to know. Like, do you consider yourself a Bridgewater Triangle Radio? Uh, I think I think we kind of have to be because nobody else has done as many episodes about it as us. Right. I mean, obviously you've covered so much more and you've touched like every part of the globe and had guests from all over the place. But you guys really are essentially, if you want to know about the Bridgewater Triangle, like download Spooky South Coast. You know, I mean, that is kind of like your your moniker for people. There's uh, I can tell you there's about 3,000 different television shows in the works about the Bridgewater Triangle. And uh, you don't need to tell me. (laughs) And a lot of them we talked about it uh, a couple of weeks ago with John Brightman. But a lot of them, you know, have reached out to me. A lot of them have reached out to you or to Brightman. Uh, But what's funny about it is. Those shows are usually ones that are just kind of getting off the ground or are looking to kind of make that the focus of what it is we do. These, sh- these other shows that are like, well, we're going to do an episode of the Bridgewater Triangle. We don't really hear from a lot of them. It's almost like they think they just can grab enough stuff from what we've put out there over the years, and that's good enough. I mean, it's the same as if you, know, you were going to do an episode and you were doing something live. I mean, you just hit the Internet, do some research, stuff like that. I don't think you necessarily bring in like every expert you could or the most well-known people. You just kind of take their information and then use it as the background because the story for them, if they're doing something like that, is the people going out in the field and doing it. Uh, I've, Which I've, is crappy for us, but you know, I'm saying like it, it, it's, it's, an, it's an understandable way to approach research. We've always joked amongst ourselves, you know you've made it when you get ripped off. <laughs> right. You know, we, we, we knew that uh, Haunted Objects was a, a good book when we found it on the Pirate Bay. Yeah, and <laughs> very quickly too, After actually. And, uh, you know, it, just a just a plug plug plug. Um, anyone who wants to go to you can especially go to my my uh, my show's Facebook page, Tripping on Legends. Uh, there's a really good episode that I recently re-aired about why the Bridgewater Triangle will never get big, and it kind of covers you know both the technical and maybe some of the spiritual, esoteric, negative energy aspects of why these shows never seem to get it right and why they probably never will. 
Well, I mean, well, we we can talk off the air, but I I think <laughs> there's a good chance that there might be something coming out that'll make it at least get, get it partially right. Okay. We'll see what happens, but uh, that's all I can say. Although I haven't really signed anything yet, so. Uh, but anyway, uh, I am not on camera, so you can't see my look of. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but that's that's you know. That's something that always will forever be associated with with this show and with your work and your research. You know, the Bridgewater Triangle will always be uh, part of the DNA of of everything that we do, and we find a a lot of it. It gets woven into the other things that we do. It's 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 just part of the fabric of all the other things that we do, and right. and I think that that's kind of what we're going to talk about a bit tonight. As we do, you know, a, a good breakdown of of the story of it, because listen, we've we've always said that at some point we're going to do something where we're going to break down the Dark Tower. I know we've talked about doing it with the Stand, but I think this is you know a timely one with the new movie. But it's a lot of the same themes that we see run through a lot of the other stuff that we liked growing up. You know, right. we we come we came up as part of the generation and i don't think that there was another one prior and i don't think they've done a good job of it since but we're part of the generation where our growth and our loss of innocence was a major theme in a lot of the the television and movies that we saw more so than than today and and i just i I think that it was a new thing in the 80s to to look at kids and say they can be the driving force of an adult story and mm-hmm. and then, ever since then, everything that's come after, you know, Stand By Me and um, we can really go through all the John Hughes movies, everything, all of those, everything that's become, that's come after that has either been almost like a, a parody or an homage to that. So we are of that very special generation where coming of age movies uh, really resonate with us more so maybe than with other age groups. Yeah, and, and like you can't, you know, as you're saying that, I'm trying to think of... And of course, it's reflected in in horror in a, in a in a great way that we're going to talk about. But I'm really trying to think of like, you know, it, it seemed that there was much more produced about becoming an adult, not that like transitional time, like the, more of like a middle aged adult or like a responsible adult, as opposed to just kind of finding yourself. Mm-hmm. And I'm really trying to think of like classic movies or books that really talk about. You know, uh, um, a that <laughs> that great demographic of like sixteen to twenty four, um, which of course, like, which is what drives all of this, is the money, right? Um, that really focused on that kind of stuff. I mean, maybe Catcher in the Rye, right? But I mean, they, that just inspires serial killers. So, like, right. other than that, I really can't think of anything that was very powerful that kind of spoke to that, like you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm trying to think back, but like, you know, kids were either. Or, or even young adults were either characters in movies aimed just at that audience, or they were just ancillary characters to more adult stories. And I think, yeah, I'm trying to think of like where we can really pinpoint a shift in that. And I, I almost want to say Stand By Me is the shift. I mean, what are we talking, 1986? You know, mm-hmm. we, we see these other John Hughes movies in, in the early to mid-80s that are focusing on kids as, and taking them seriously as characters – but I don't think adults watch those movies. I think, you know, if they did, it was not a huge portion of the audience. It was the teenagers 
that suddenly had the disposable income and the keys to the parents' car that were going out to the theaters and seeing 16 Candles and Fast Times at Ridgemont High and all those kinds of movies. I think Stand By Me was the first one that adults sat down and watched and said, oh, this is what it was like when I was a kid. But also the kids watched it and said, this is what I'm going through right now. Right. Because I was going to say Kids Incorporated, but adults (laughs) weren't watching that. Well, some of them were, but they were really creepy if they were. No, I'm with you. And I, I, someone just wrote um, Gary W. in the um, in the chat room just wrote Buffy, and I think that's a real turning point too because uh, that portrayed um, kids as adults, and yet all the metaphors were of coming of age. You know, what I'm saying they were kids without parents to a large degree, although you could you could argue that, but they were really like this adult group that were actually just children. And yet everything in there was a metaphor for growing up. So I totally want to say that like Buffy might have solidified that. But you knew that I was going to say that at some point. Right. Well, but, and also, though, that, that did come quite a bit later than some of the stuff that we saw in the 80s. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, if, if we had a Bible of, of these type of stories, then, you know, stand by me, beget the wonder years. And then the wonder <laughs> years beget, you know, like that's just kind of how it'll go because it, as, it, as it became – uh, both profitable, but also uh, a great storytelling device. More and more um, entities jumped on it, and I, I think that that was that's kind of the direct transition, right there, is going from the Stand by Me to the Wonder Years. I mean, I remember sitting down with the. Th- th- this is how the Wonder Years was in my house. So uh, on Tuesday nights, my mom would always go out shopping with my grandmother, and usually, if we were lucky. She would take my sisters, not always, but sometimes. And then I would finally get the TV to myself and I could watch whatever I wanted. But I remember sitting on the couch being 9, 10, 11 years old, watching The Wonder Years with my dad. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, this is exactly like what I'm going through every day in school. You know, I've got my Winnie Cooper. I've got my Paul Pfeiffer. This is exactly what I'm going through every day. And then my dad just says out loud one night, this is, this, this is my childhood. This is me. This is the story of yeah. me. This is exactly what – and that's when I kind of had that light bulb moment where I said, wow, like my dad was just like me. He was a kid once, and, and, and this is a common experience that we've shared. I, I wonder if it evolved from – like if we're talking our begets, um, I wonder if it evolved from like the popularity of – slasher movies of the late 70s where granted it wasn't it wasn't tween early teen but it was those were movies about teenagers and teenagers in precarious situations that could be watched by teens were watched by us on tv 38 you know years afterwards but also were being consumed by adults and whether that was like really like okay so we can have a show where we can have a, a movie that's driven by characters who are younger and yet, you know, are, are likable or consumable by adults. And then that became like a little bit gentler, a little bit gentler, a little bit gentler until you get, you know, something like The Wonder Years. And it was during this time, uh, and, and I would have to kind of look, at, look back into the history of it and, and, and see exactly, you know, looking at King's writing exactly when he says that he started – uh, writing the book it, but I know it came out in 1986. So this is, right. you know, coming out at the time where a lot of this type of, 
you know, uh, coming of age story has become popular in, in the media again, or, or for the first time, really. And what I found interesting about the release, I remember when that book came out, uh, I was not a Stephen King reader yet at that point, because I had yet to discover uh, any of the books. I knew of the movies. Uh, mm-hmm. I think at that point we had had what Carrie had come out, and I think there was uh, a couple other ones, but it was yeah, Christine, uh, Firestarter, but it was the Stand by Me story, and finding out that that was written by the same guy that came from a story from the same mm-hmm. guy that was like, oh, well, who is this guy? Like, I really love that movie, so I must really love all the other stuff that he he does. So I remember my mom had had Pet Cemetery. So I'd seen the cover of the book in my house, but I was told I wasn't allowed to read it and didn't think enough to to be rebellious and do it anyway. But then I remember going, walking into the store. I was in, it was either the Westgate Mall in Brockton or the South Shore Plaza in Braintree. I can't remember which one. But I walked into a store and I saw the big poster and all the, the books of it. And none of them mentioned the clown on the cover. It was the original cover with the green hand coming out of the sewer grate and grabbing onto the boat. And I, I had no idea that it, the, the story involved the clown until I actually read the book years later. Do you have any idea why they didn't put the clown or involve the clown in, in the marketing for it? I honestly think that, that the, the clown was supposed to be secondary to what it represented and what it was. And that was something that could change throughout time depending on what scared the crap out of people, right? I can say crap on the air, right? Yes. Okay, good. Um, and so the, that driving force would have been like anything, right? Like it's, so it's, it's the mysterious part. And I really think it's probably the, the 1990 movie that, capitalized much more on the clown part and made the clown the driving force of the of the terror as opposed to just this thing can take any form you want because if you actually look at you know uh, the book and and the movies to some degree um less but but still he he's not the clown the whole time right um he shifts from back and forth and, and in, in the book that shift is much more prevalent than it is in the movie and I think part of the reason of the marketing is, like, this terror could come from anywhere. It just happens to right now be Pennywise. But but I think the, the clown is the most marketable thing, too. Exactly. Like, the clown is what should have been on the front cover because people are scared of clowns and they would have loved to have read a story about a clown. And I, I know that we've talked about this in the past, but it, I think it kind of bears repeating that um, we were going through uh, a bit of a clown scare in the years leading up to the release of that book. Yeah, that would have been in 1982 or 83. I can't remember the exact year. Um, but it, I'm, I'm not sure if it's as mark. I'm not sure if us looking back on it, we thought, think it would have been more marketable. I think that, um, I don't think it would have been a distraction. Maybe just they, they didn't, I don't think people were as scared of clowns back then as we think that they were. But there At was... least in terms of like this primal fear. I mean, you didn't have, these massive, you know, <laughs> and maybe part of that is this online forum, but like you didn't have the, the the same level of terror about a clown back in the in the mid '80s that you did that, that you do now. I don't think. But there had been think, stories, uh, uh, real life stories, where clowns had you know been the bad guy. 
Right. I mean, like I said, obviously we, we have the, the clown scare, and so that would have been somewhat in the mind. Um, what I'm interested in is when Stephen King changed, because if you actually read the history of the book, he started it in the late eight, uh, late 70s, and the main character, oddly enough, the main character of Pennywise was going to manifest itself much more like a puck wedgie, oddly enough, uh, than a clown. And I wonder if those scares change, because we've always talked about how the two are not connected, and, and, and Pennywise did not influence, and that didn't necessarily influence him. Um, but I wonder, like, when that shift happened, because, you know, that would kind of give us a little bit of a key of exactly how creepy they were. I mean, obviously you have John Wayne Gacy um, is what is pushed forward now, especially, and it's what I talk about as being potentially one of the sparks of the, 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 the clown craze of the early 80s. Um, but once again, I think we're looking at it in retrospect, and I wonder how much um, John Wayne Gacy as the killer clown was promoted. I know especially in the years after he was caught, when he started making the paintings, and there was so much more stress put on the fact that he had been a clown. I wonder how much of that uh, was pushed forth back then when he was on trial. And that, I, that we can't know. I guess we could look back and see how often it's referenced in, in old newspapers, but I, I do think that there is a fear and a scapegoat, and there's, we can talk about the reasons why you know, clowns are really something that terrify us, which I'm sure we'll cover. Um, I, just, I, I wonder if it's as much as we think it was looking back. That's a good point. I mean, I, I think that, too, a lot of us that are of our age, I don't know when you read it for the first time, but, I mean, I think a lot of us may have seen the original 1990 miniseries before they read the book. Uh, I did, yes. I saw this miniseries before I read the book. I'm, I, I'm trying to remember if I did or I didn't. I think that I must have seen the miniseries first because I remember that the copy of it that I read had Tim Curry's Pennywise on the cover of the paperback. Right. So I must have read it afterwards. Um, see what, what happened with me is I, I'm sure there was similar for you, but my grandmother would go around to yard sales every weekend and she would just come back from these yard sales with, with boxes and bags of paperback books. And mm -hmm. she would just hand them to me here. And I would tear through whatever was in them that I wanted to read. And, uh, you know, we had a, a good thing going back in those days because we had used bookstores everywhere that you could read these books that you bought for a quarter a piece at the yard sale and then go and turn them in at the used bookstore for credit and walk out with five or six more books. And it was a, it was a pretty good racket. But, um, you know, I would get, you know, big boxes of, of Stephen King paperbacks that she got at yard sales. So I probably had a copy of it kicking around the house but just hadn't read it yet. But it was watching – I think it was watching that miniseries that made me have to dive into it. And what a difference between the two – Obviously, you know, the book's always better than the movie anyway, and you're dealing right. with a made-for-television miniseries, but it was just, it was on another level to me. And and I think that it still is, you know, to this day, I, I reread it every couple of years, that it's still on that other level. But for a lot of, I think a lot of the general public, I know it was a hit book when it came out, but I think it really became a, a big, big deal after that 1990 miniseries. And I, and I think that it's solidified because, uh, like you're saying, I read it after, after the miniseries as well. And there was no way for me ever to imagine it as I was reading, even when he wasn't there, uh, Tim Curry's Pennywise as the character in the book. Right. 
like looked like that. It sounded like that. Like that's what it was. Um, and I think that he had done such an amazing job that it automatically made the book more popular. And it was successful when it came out. I mean, he was kind of in his heyday. It was one of those times when he was producing every year and a half something that was everyone was reading. You know, and so it came out at the height of kind of his career in the 80s, um, especially coming off the success of some of the really good Stephen King movies mm-hmm. um, that that it then launched it to like a different level once that movie came out. It, it's it's funny because you were talking about the books and I can imagine, you know, we talk about today um, making sure we're monitoring what our kids are watching on the Internet and, and what they're doing with their TikTok and all this kind of stuff. And I remember my parents having some of the most horrific books um, in the bathroom. Right. Like V.C. Andrews and Stephen King and these books that we're talking about and, and, and Sandra Brown and these things that we're talking about really, really graphic stuff, and they were just there on the toilet. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. um, and that's how, that's how I got exposed to him. You know what I'm saying? Mine was through Night Shift, um, which I still read every single year. I actually have three copies of it because uh, I read it so much. And it, it keeps breaking on me. And, you know, I, I think that uh, there was enough not there and enough there that it really, for a young kid, like, it really mess you up. Absolutely. And, and you could imagine it. So I wish almost that I had been able to read it without having seen the miniseries. Like, and I wish that I could have read um, The Stand without having seen the miniseries so that I could have imagined those characters because... Like, in my mind, those were solidified. And it did a lot to raise the popularity of it, but it also kind of, like, diminished a little bit of, like, what you can imagine when you're actually reading it. See, I, I started, the first book I read was Pet Cemetery, and then I went from that to Christine, uh, and then I read, I think I read Carrie next, didn't care for that. I think I read Firestarter next, didn't really like that. So I never really, like, you know, I, I was kind. it was kind of, you know, a, a hit and miss thing for me. It wasn't like I got sucked right into his world right away, but um, I remember it was the summer of 1991 that I went on a voracious tear and I was reading through, like, you know, I read The Stand in a week. Like I was just going wow. through these books nonstop because we had a, my, my family had a, uh, a routine. We would wake up every day. My mom would take us to the pond down the street. We would swim for a few hours in the morning and then we'd go back in the house in the afternoon. And as soon as I got back into the house, I had my nose shoved into one of those books and I, I worked through uh, just about as many of them as I could. But I remember Stephen King being on that, that hit streak that you mentioned that, you know, it came out. It was a successful book. The pet cemetery movie came out in 89. I believe that was a big hit if I remember correctly, but it was a good movie anyway. Uh, and then we had the, there was the, 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 the it miniseries, but also around that same time, he had that show on CBS that's uh, very underrated, Stephen King's Golden Years, where yeah. it was his first made-for-TV project that was you know, just made for television. And then the It miniseries was just like nothing we had ever seen before in terms of putting horror on TV. And uh, Mr. Apnea mentioned it in the chat room. It was that miniseries that really elevated the clown because if you sign Tim Curry to play Pennywise in that miniseries, you're going to make sure that you maximize Tim Curry as much as you can, even though he's not seen... Uh, and on a lot of screen time, but they made sure that, you know, when they were showing it, it was going to be that Tim Curry character. Yeah. And he just like completely encapsulated that character. Um, even if it, if, even if it's not necessarily what was on the page, 
I mean, that is, you know, and that's kind of what you're supposed to do, you know, and, and we'll talk about this as we talk more about the movies themselves, but these things need to be viewed as separate mediums. You know what I'm saying? It need to be viewed as separate works of art. Say like, okay, this, you can say you like more in this one and this one, but really, okay, let's just look at the, 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 the 2017, 2019 movies as they are. Let's look at the 1990 as they are. And in terms of that, like, that is the character. I mean, that his performance in that is amazing. And it also, um, I don't want to say that it, it, it expanded what we could do on TV. Like, I think that's kind of giving it too much credit, especially since it aired in the same season as Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. But it really kind of showed that you don't have to be afraid to push the envelope a little bit when it comes to broadcast TV content. Now, I think if they remade that as a TV miniseries today, and I know, I know it would never be on television, it would be on Netflix or HBO or something like that, but if they had remade it for broadcast TV today, you, you know, they, they'd push every boundary possible. But back then, you know, to see kids killed in a, in a, TV, so, in a TV show was, was pretty, pretty out there. Yeah, I think, I don't know how many years ago, it's got to be 10 years ago, I'm getting older, they did redo uh, Salem's Lot. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, like, and I love, Salem's Lot is, is one of my favorite horror movies of all time. It's my favorite Stephen King novel. Um, and I thought, oh my word, they really are pushing this as much as they can for that audience that it was. You know, and maybe someone in the chat room or whatever can say, maybe it was 2004, 2005? I think so. I think it was right around that time, yeah. And so it would be really interesting to know, like, you know, and, and once again, we'll, we can get into this later, whatever. The movies, the way that they were on the screen, had limitations. <laughs> and the limitation of it is is that you're trying to shotgun uh, something which, even though we have nostalgia for it, um, what really is scary about the book and what's really scary about the story actually only hits a small spectrum of people. These these things just keep firing themselves up. Oh, oh they, yeah, I thought we were. I thought that was your way of bumping me into a because we're at the top of the hour. No, no, this 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 thing keeps populating things into the into the log that aren't already there. Like that wasn't in the log, and it just added it in. I swear. I think Stephen King needs to write a book about this new automation software. Uh, it's just kind of the next beast that disrupts Spooky South Coast. Well, remember how the old computer used to do it all the time? And, uh, I do remember that. I was so excited because I was like, oh, this new system that'll – because I usually just pot it down. I'm like, oh, this new system that'll never happen again. And and now it seems possessed. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We had the team here all week from from the company that installs it. We had the team here all week, and they were showing us all the tricks and everything. I didn't bother to ask if any of them were an exorcist. And if they could kind of do a blessing over it like we had Keith Johnson do over the old system. I was just call Keith. I think I might have to have him pop in and do something. Well, we're just about up against the news break anyway, but we are going to get even deeper in this coming up in the next hour. And, uh, and I think that we're going to really get into some of these themes. Uh, and again, we'll talk about clowns and we'll talk about the fear of clowns, but it goes so much deeper than just clowns. Uh, right. Especially when we start looking at the way that they've adapted the the story into the new movies and and I think that we'll we'll give a little bit of a review of it chapter two 
We'll probably get into some spoilers, so we just want to put that out there for people in case they haven't seen the movie yet. But also, we might even get into a little bit of a debate about it, because I don't think you and I came away with the same feeling about the movie. Uh, I came away thinking it was fantastic, and, and you didn't quite feel that way. Definitely not fantastic. So we'll get into that, too. I mean, listen, the, the runtime, I can appreciate that. I didn't feel like it. Like I felt like I was in the movie theater for three hours, but I also felt like, do we really need to go along with every one of the Losers Club and, and go through their, you know, this collecting of the artifacts, which is another thing we'll get into. Uh, but I kind of looked at it as, you know, a matter of if if the story is good, I can kind of go on these little side treks. But then standing back sure. and stepping back and looking at it as a whole, I'm like, oh, uh, those those worked better overall than they seemed like they worked in the moment. But maybe you disagree. So we'll get into that coming up in the next hour. We'll also take your phone calls as well, 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. Of course, it has to be on topic. Don't call in and try and derail the conversation. If you have thoughts on it, if you have thoughts on Stephen King, we will take those calls. Uh, and we can also take your email, spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com, or you can tweet us at spookysc, or you can even uh, you can even jump into the chat room. And ask your questions that way, because we have a great group in there. I want to say hi to everybody in there. And uh, looks like we have all the usual regulars, plus some new people as well. So that's always good. Spread the spooky word, word. Let everybody know this is what you do on Saturday nights. Put us up on your big screen TV on the YouTube app. Sit back. Hang out with the family. We'll be right back with more Spooky South Coast. Are you intrigued by Paranormal Talk Radio? You love the new Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live. You'll find a great selection of talk shows covering UFOs, ghosts, strange phenomena, and much more. Download the Paranormal Radio app now and start listening to the very best in paranormal talk entertainment, the Paranormal Radio app, free in Google Play and the iOS App Store. Welcome back. Our number two of Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg here, flying solo in the Spooky studio, but I'm joined on the phone lines by my guest this evening, Chris Balzano, the analytical folklorist, as I like to call him, the man who is able to break things down better than anybody, and tonight we're doing a patented Balzano breakdown of Stephen King's It, and um, we we have the phone lines open if anybody wants to call in, 508 996 uh, Chris, before we get back into it, we do have a call on the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know where this is going to go, but uh, we'll we'll take it and we'll see what happens. Beautiful. Good we'll evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How are you? Well, well hey, there you go. Like I said, you never know where it's going to go. So uh, we are talking about Stephen King's It, and uh, Chris, we were talking about beforehand, uh, you had mentioned uh, people's fears of clowns, and how that 
played a big part into why this just say the magic words well i will do that uh why this plays so well into the story and we talked a little bit about what was kind of going on but you know in 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 the news with john wayne gacy and this this clown scare that had happened but is a fear of clowns a long-standing thing? Is this something that's always kind of been something that's existed in society? I think <clears throat> because I, I did some some work on this, uh, and I was talking to uh, Craig Pace, who is a an amazing uh, paranormal enthusiast and, and writer on this, and he was mentioning that you know the the idea of what we see as a clown now, like Pennywise. And Pennywise is a great example. Is actually uh, more uh, <laughs> used to be used in plays to show the outsider, um, and it was actually representative of what many Europeans feared the most, uh, which was Jewish people. So there has been a long urban legend, an, an old urban legend, of Jewish people having red hair. Um, and of course, you know, the, the, the anti-Semitic uh, idea of the Jewish nose. And so oftentimes in these plays, the bad person who would come to town, uh, and, and, and the coming to town is the part that's always overlooked when people think about it, and we'll get to that. But the idea of this outsider who would come in um, and wreck havoc or be blamed for things, it was supposed to be a comic, over-the-top, cartoonish representation of Jewish people. Um, somewhere along the line, the classic representation of a clown, which was almost always bald with the painted face and with the, the over-exaggerated smile, those two things kind of in the 20th century, um, especially with the advent of television and television clowns, started to get mixed up with each other um, because you did have this kind of intimidating, over-the-top personality mixed with this kind of vibrant thing. People kind of forgot the origins of it, so it, it, no one was making that necessarily that connection. But there's always been this kind of fear of the way that Pennywise looks as a clown, which is hilarious because we grew up in Bozo, right? Right. Um, but... The tradition of being scared of clowns, <coughs> excuse me, is fairly new, but not of the representation of what Pennywise looks like as a clown, if that makes sense. No, it, it, it does. And uh, and as you said, you know, we grew up in the Bozo era. We grew up at a time when Ronald McDonald was in every commercial and, you know, he represented right. the place that we wanted to go eat dinner more than anything. Uh, but right. one of the uh, one of the flashback moments that I had recently was... Uh, you know, something that I, I think you will be familiar with, but maybe a lot of our listeners won't be afraid uh, familiar with. But remember Willie Whistle? Um, yes. Oh, my word. No. Oh, thank you. Not sleeping tonight. <laughs> exactly. Like, that was the first clown that I think that I was ever afraid of, although I loved it. Like, I watched the show. But then at night when I would go to sleep, I would have nightmares about Willie Whistle. And, and for those who aren't familiar, uh, look it up on YouTube. You can you you can find it. There's clips of him when he was on Channel 38 in Boston, but I guess they brought him in from I think he was on Seattle or something beforehand. But he was a clown, red hair, red nose, you know, clown makeup, but he could only talk in the, in this high pitched whistle. 
And it was fun and funny to watch, although it, I don't know. Now that I look back at it and I'm, I'm saying this out loud, it wasn't a really fun show either. It was kind no, of. We didn't have a lot to choose from. It was depressing. Yeah. Like there was nothing fun and energetic about Willie Whistle. But, you know, he's still a beloved character around here, but I would have nightmares about, you know, Willie Whistle chasing me, making that horrible high pitched whistling sound. You know, I remember so many years um, with my um, <laughs> my hesitancy to get dressed up for Halloween and my parents' lack of oom-papa when it came to dressing me up, dressing up as a clown so many times, and never did my appearance. I, it was it was much more of the, uh, um, am, I, am I getting the name right, since long, Red Skeleton, like, like hobo clown. Mm-hmm. Like, that was, when I thought of a clown, that's what I thought of. You know, and then of course you had you know Bozo and and, and Willie Whistle and all those ones that, but like when I went to a circus, I don't remember seeing the flamboyant one. I remember seeing or at least associating it with the sad clown. You know what I'm saying? The hobo clown. All of those right. really creepy, in their own right, <laughs> uh, figurines of the hobo type clown playing the saxophone and and you know like you know uh, uh, under holding an umbrella and, and things like that, which absolutely looked nothing like. And, and actually, I was just about to bring it up, uh, say it, and then someone brought up in the chat room i think poltergeist did as much to make clown scary as as uh true as um you know it did <laughs> you know right well you of course you had that clown doll in that movie and then people just kind of picked up on that clown trope too like you know even that brief little scene in peewee's big adventure where he f- discovers his bike is gone you know the animatronic clown is laughing in his face you know we see right. little moments like that that make clown and then um uh there was a. I, I want to say there was another movie where there was a a, a killer in a clown mask um, in the eighties, maybe in the early eighties. But then, you know, we also had Killer Clowns from Outer Space comes out. Like, you know, clowns started to make that that shift and that turn. Right, and I do think that that around the time that that book is published is when that shift happens, um, and not necessarily a long time before. I, yep, like, I don't I can think agree my with that. parents growing up in the sixties. We're scared of clowns, but they're scared of clowns now. Right. And, and I think that people, um, you know, people who are scared of clowns, it's, it's not like, oh, like clowns freak me out. I, you know, I, I, I can't really, it's, it's like a crippling fear. It's, it's, it's all or nothing when it comes to the clown phobia. Yeah. And, and I don't know many people that aren't <laughs> crippled by it. Right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not scared of clowns but i've been scared of particular clowns throughout the course of my life in particular instances uh but still i mean that's just part of the horror of it is is utilizing that clown form uh to be able to to try and scare uh, the losers club but really the clown is just part of that as you mentioned before you know it actually takes the shape of whatever they're afraid of the most and and i think that that's one thing that was lacking a little bit in the new movies is that they sure they showed you know the 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 manifestation of the leper uh but they didn't cover the werewolf they didn't cover you know they did cover um the woman the old woman when when bev goes back to her house but there just wasn't enough of that manifestation of it as other forms right so in the new movies it's almost like instead of thinking that's it taking a different form. It's Pennywise taking a different form. If you get what yeah, I mean. 
Yeah, and it, you know, and you have to ask why that is, right? So, I think that if you're looking at, like, in the book, um, <laughs> kids would have been genuinely scared by the Universal movie monsters. Mm-hmm. You know, we look back on that, and we're—I don't know anyone who legitimately is like, "I'm scared of werewolf. I'm scared of the creature from the Black Lagoon." Like. Maybe Dracula, right? But, like, those things are not fearful for us. And, and they didn't make the transition of, okay, so those are what kids in the 50s might have been scared of. That might have even been what Stephen King was scared of growing up. But what are, what were kids in the 80s scared of? Like, what was, what was being presented there? And maybe they couldn't do that because, you know, they didn't have the copyright budget of Ready Player One to buy the rights to those kinds of things because maybe they were more specific. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the movie made the transition to the future, but the, the, the scariness didn't, <laughs> right? So in place of that, you just have to make Pennywise creepier. And I think, too, that you have... Uh, listen, Tim Curry did a great job, but upon watching the new versions and, and, and putting that prejudice out of my mind, Bill Skarsgård is amazing. Amazing. Because, like, that, like, I couldn't get over watching the original It miniseries that that was Tim Curry playing the clown. You know, that was kind of always kind of in, in my mind that it's Tim Curry. Like, and he's, and he's putting a little bit of that goofy twist into it as well. There's nothing that Skarsgård did as Pennywise that was never not creepy. Yeah. And, and and it was like an entirely different take on it. It was child predator. Yes, I mean it wasn't it wasn't like ho, ho, ho. <laughs> it wasn't Joker part Joker part creepy. It was um, it was child predator. Uh, you know, it, it there is in either of the movies. There's no and I I don't think this is a spoiler. Maybe should I say spoiler? Uh, well, well, we're just going to generalize and say like there will be spoilers in this discussion. Okay, the scene under the bleachers. Right, I was thinking the same thing. Probably the scariest, and not scary as in, like ah, jump scare. Scary as in when that movie was over and I was in bed afterwards. I thought about how creepy that was, and if that was my daughter. And not only that, but how realistic it was. Aside from the fact there's a sadistic killer clown that's an alien from outer space or whatever underneath the bleachers, like just the fact that that could happen so easily. Right. And the manipulation of, and that was, that's supposed to be the beauty of Pennywise is not, I'm going to give you something and you're, you're scared of it. It's, I know what you're scared of and I'm presenting it. Mm-hmm. And, and the Kim Curry version had less of that, but that idea of we as audience know where he's going. She as a, um, a, somewhat street savvy or thinking she's street savvy little girl thinks she knows what's happening, but then gets disarmed. And that is so um, realistic. And yet, you know, you're watching it and you know, it's, it's, it's something that happens every day. Only the person's not in makeup and they just easily, he easily could have not been the makeup in there and had that scene work. What I thought was especially creepy about this new version of Pennywise is in the original miniseries, 
and I, 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 I'd have to go back and reread the book looking specifically for this because it didn't, it didn't register in my head reading the book. But in the original miniseries, Pennywise, for the most part, got the kids alone. So he, he was never in the heart and soul of Derry. There was never a, a lot of adults around with him making himself known. But with the Skarsgård version, he would show up anywhere at any time. So it wasn't these kids right. that were off playing by themselves in, in, in the Barrens or, or, or playing off by themselves you know, somewhere else in, in, in Derry. He was right there under the bleachers as the entire town was sitting over him watching a, a, a baseball game. Some of that might have been money. In the book, he is. In the book, I remember very clearly he is in different parts of Derry. Well, no, I mean, yeah, physically, physically in different parts, sure. But I mean, never... Like amongst a crowd, like you feel like when you're a kid and you're in a group of uh, uh, of people, you're, you're safe. Saying. But you're not you. safe from him in in the new versions, even if you're in a crowd. Right. He doesn't okay. lure you. Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not being lured away to being a loner, which was part of what made the losers so vulnerable to him when they were individuals is because they were always by themselves. But this Pennywise can strike at any time. I mean, he go. I'm glad they put the Adrian Mellon scene in, and I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit before we run out of time. But that's something that happens while the whole damn town is, is, is at the festival. Right. You know, and he goes after the little boy again and when, in, the, in the middle of this giant carnival. Yeah, and that's that. Those are the scary parts of the story, and those are when the that's when the movie is at its best. Is when it is this terror in the middle of everybody, you know, and and it's, it's kind of like it can happen anytime, it can strike anytime, but it's also like, you know, if you take a step back from that, um, <laughs> if you're a loner and you're one of those sensitive kids or sensitive adults dealing with your sensitive kid issues, like. You're always alone. You're, you know what I'm saying? You're always that. You, you carry that fear with you all the time, even if it's kind of, you know, been pushed further down under the surface. But it does, the things that you're scared of just take a different form. And being around a lot of people um, and even being the center of attention is not necessarily going to stop that. And that's when that movie works really well is when you have these kind of public places and when you have these things where something's not supposed to happen, uh, and of course, then it does. And, and what I think that signifies, at least on a subconscious level, I don't know if it was a conscious decision, but you know, in, in the 1990 miniseries, the lo- the losers and the kids that were targeted by Pennywise were off on their own. They were physical loners. In this right. version of it, they don't have to be physical loners. They're just it's an emotional thing. And in the fact that today's society, we have a lot of people that could sit in a crowd of people and feel like they're utterly alone. And it's almost like it's playing on kind of that, that, that mental shift that has happened in the years between, you know, that adaptation and this one. One of the things that I thought was really, um, to, to that point, one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that, and I'm horrible with names, so you're totally going to have to help me. But um, the, uh, the the kid who's overweight who becomes not overweight. Ben. Ben, thank you. Mm-hmm. Ben is, and he's portraying the book as this, uh, as the, in the same way. He's on top of the world. He is like it. <laughs> no pun intended. You know. And in the movie, 
I really like the fact that he's Skyped in. Mm-hmm. And that he actually is, even though he is at the center of this great company and he's the most you know, sought-after architect, he's conducting the meeting from his empty house. Right. I thought that that echoed so well to what these characters really were. You know, and some of them have physical isolation. Some, you know, is there anything more isolating than being a writer? Right, or being a stand-up you comic. Know, right, right, and, and and he's in he's in his trailer by himself, working on the story while everyone around him is kind of interacting and and waiting for him to do. And then, of course, the guy is by he's being skyped in. You know, he, he, old Ben is there, <laughs> or OG Ben is in the in the room, but he's not. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the I know uh, that was a great that was a great um, misdirection in that scene. By the way, yeah, it was. That was like that. Was, I, I mean, I was hooked in, and I I'm thinking to myself, didn't I see Ben in the trailer or something? Like, no, like I was I was hooked in. I thought for sure that that was grown up Ben. And then, and no boom. one around me got it. I had the worst audience ever. I'm looking around. <laughs> The person I was with didn't get it. The people next to me, none of them seemed to be like, <gasps> have their mouth open. And I was like, okay, so this is my crowd that I'm going to be with tonight. Uh, I thought that was excellent. but And also, I will say this, uh, just so I can make this point before we run out of time. Bill Hader owned this movie. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a McAvoy fan, and I thought that you know him being Bill would mean that he would be the focus of a lot of the stuff, but... But uh, absolutely, one hundred percent. This is Bill Hader's movie, and that's supposed to be kind of the point, right? Is that he's the one who's supposed to win her over and and be more. And and you know, I I, I loved I loved Professor X in it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and there were times when I said, "But th- he's him, right?" So there's times when you're like, "Okay, he's acting. I know he's acting." You're like, and then there were times that it felt so genuine. But I do think that the story did steer away from him being the main protagonist to it being a little more spread out. And then like you're saying, like, like Ben being a little bit more. And, 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 and Bill Hader is, is old Richie, you know, well old, but as adult Richie, I think they. Oh, I'm sorry. I totally misunderstood what you said. I'm with you though. Go ahead. I, I think they explored something that was kind of an undercurrent in the book. But that wasn't really addressed. It wasn't addressed at all, of course, in the 1990 miniseries. But I don't even know how much it was addressed in the first chapter of this remake. If you look at the It novel, it starts off with the Adrian Mellon scene. It starts off with this gay man who is targeted by Pennywise, an adult male. And I think, as far as I remember, he's the only adult that's killed by the clown but he is you know aside from the losers club going to battle with him later on but he's also an outsider you know he's also somebody who isn't accepted by Derry because he is a gay man and and all that happens but i still thought that that was a weird thing to include in the book and i think that's because i never picked up on the subtext of what was going on amongst the Losers Club themselves, but the movie lays it out there without putting it out in your face. Richie was in love with Eddie. Right. And I never picked that up in the book. I don't know why. Um, I think that probably where we were, we wouldn't have picked up that subtext. 
But even in but rereads, I've never picked like up on it. Job in the movie, um, of of being like, wait the wait, wait a minute, wait wait a minute, and then by the end you're like, all right, when he's when he's doing the um, the carving, you know, mm-hmm. and and I I I told by the way I totally misunderstood what you said before, but I'm on board with what you're saying now. But yeah, that is like, you know, that is um, holding that secret is the ultimate definition of being in a room full of people and being by yourself. Yes. And, and that when I, when that happened, it wasn't one of those things where I felt like, Oh, they forced this storyline. They, they foisted this into the storyline to make them even more, you know, outsiders or to make it even more, you know, of a social statement. I didn't feel that. I was like, Oh, they picked up on something that I didn't pick up on. But I will say this, the audience that was, that I saw the movie with, I don't know if any of them had ever read the book. And I've seen a lot of reviews of this movie online from people that have probably never read the book because they all attack that Adrian Mellon scene as saying, like, this is something that they put in there to be, you know, a social commentary on today. And it's like, you don't understand. That's how the book started 30 years ago. Yeah, it's funny because going in, one of the things I said was, huh, they didn't do in the first one, probably ain't going to do in the second one. Like, I honestly didn't think that I would ever see that scene on film. There's another scene that I'm glad that we didn't see on film. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> and I don't, can't, can't, and, and let me ask you, because most people, then when I say it, they don't really um, get it. Do you think that needs? done like did you think that that was gratuitous in the book it, no it was it, it was not necessary in the book at all either and even king yeah, i think said i don't know i was i was doing a lot of cocaine at the time <laughs> like it's 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 creepy and and for those who have never read the book i guess we have to have to kind of give you an idea of what we're talking about there's a scene at the end of the movie you know you, you i mean at the end of the book you see in the movie you know they slice their hands open they do the blood oath you know that kind of bonds them together they take it a step further in the book. In the book, in order to kind of keep them all connected in some way, uh, the character of Beverly just, she has sex with all the boys. Like, not even, like, separately either. Like, one right after the other. And it's it's weird, and it's and it's gross, and it doesn't fit into the story, and it doesn't fit into who these characters are, and it and it doesn't... it's one of the things that's the most controversial and most talked about things about the book. And it's why a lot of libraries banned the book was just for that scene alone. Everything else was fine. You can have clowns and and spiders ripping apart kids, but you can't have, you know, that scene. And it, it, and it was gratuitous and and unnecessary. So I'm glad it didn't make it into the film, but I am, I am glad that the ritual of Jude made it in and that they incorporated some of the native American storytelling and even, even the original origin of it, even though they didn't get into the turtle and some of the other stuff, but there were all those allusions in both movies to turtles. Right. It was almost like they were throwing you a little bit of an Easter egg, but they weren't going to actually go down that storytelling path. It was definitely like a little bit of like, oh, you're a Stephen King fan. Here's a turtle. Yeah. You know, you'll get it. Wink, wink, but, but no one else will. Yeah. And, and it's really interesting just to get back to the Beverly thing is that I, when I read it, and I last read it probably about five years ago, it never comes off to me as rape. No, it's not. It's it's not and rape yet, at all. Right, and yet... I mean, except for statutory yet, rape, but... 
Well, is it statutory though? I mean, if not, if they're all underage, right? No, it is I mean, that, statutory. That, you know what? That's statutory rape. You don't need to have, but yeah, statutory rape. Um, statutory rape, even if both parties are underage. Um, but like I, when it's referred to now, oftentimes it is called a rape or a gang rape. Right. And I was like, ah, that's that. You know, I, I don't like the scene. I don't like. I don't think, like you're saying, I think it's in place, but it's just I believe it was her idea, if I remember right. A generation removed from it. I don't, I don't remember whose idea it was, but a generation removed, um, it, even how that scene is looked on is, is entirely different. Yes. Yeah. You couldn't get away with that, even if you felt like it was necessary for the storytelling. No, and it's not. So, <laughs> but yeah, but, but, you know, I, I don't remember. I don't remember when I first read it, getting the getting the um, the, the the gay undertone um, at all. No, um, and I was more sensitive to it or got it um, the second time I read it. But I think the movie did a really good job of putting it in there and kind of giving you the same confusion that maybe his friends on some level had about it. Right. No, I everyone jokes about that. it, but. Is it just one of those things that uh, that's how you pick on a little kid, you know, or was there something more to it? And I thought the movie did a really good job of exploring that. I didn't even I didn't even pick up on it in the scene where he was playing the video games against Bauer's cousin. And and he called him that name. I still didn't pick up on it. Yeah, I, right. Well, that's when I started to. And I think that it originally comes off as just being lonely. Yeah, exactly. And then it develops yep. into more of like, no, he, you know, like it's not just being lonely. He kind of has this this pattern with others. But that just, I mean, it goes to show that this version of the movie, and obviously, you know, you've got five hours to tell the story. Well, I mean, the the miniseries was what six hours long or four hours long. So, yeah, I think it was four hours. I think it was two nights. So, I mean, you had time in in that too to tell the story, but. Still, I mean, this had five hours, so they really had a chance to explore the characters. And and what's ultimately the scariest part about this is it's not about having to go up against a clown or, or a creature from space or whatever it is that, you know, it represents to people. It's more about losing – first of all, losing your innocence too quickly, which mm-hmm. I think is, is something that happens to these kids – even though they're able to kind of forget about what happens in Derry as they move away. Also, like, they, they have to deal with things that no kid should have to deal with and issues that no kid should have to deal with in addition to, you know, the the battling of, of it also in their own lives. I mean, they all have problems at home and problems that continue to manifest in their lives later on even as they forget what happens as childhood. But it's it's about having that childhood taken away and then about how it affects you as an adult and keeps you from being a functional adult until you turn around and face it. And I don't know if that was necessarily Stephen King's mindset when he wrote the story. I don't think that that was something in the book, reading the book, I don't think that was something that was really an overtone that he had in mind. But I think that that was something that was perfectly explored in, in these new movies. Oh, I totally disagree. You, you, I think I think that I think that that's the reason for the back and forth, you know. And I think that that you know the the idea of 
um, which I think the '90s movie do, does better. Is the I'm call you know you get the call, and then and then you kind of explore the youth part. Which, if correct me if I'm wrong, but that's how the book plays out, right? Yeah, it's a back and forth. It's not it's yeah. not in parts. And so I I think that's totally intentional. That it is the stuff that you're scared of, the stuff that 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 breaks you as a child, is the stuff that you have to deal with as an adult. So I think that was totally intentional. Well, in the writing of the book. I think it's facing your fears is part of it. But I don't know if it's facing what broken part of you existed then that still exists in you now. I don't think it was as deep of a psychological uh, dive into their personas as maybe the movies were. I I do. I I honestly think... I I mean, just in the format of the writing it is, is too. I mean, I, I think we look at all of those adults as damaged in the book and we're called to why are they so messed up? And then we see that their, their childhood is just a reflection. Like each of them is the exact same person as an adult, regardless of what they've now covered themselves in or what they might be doing that same, those same insecurities, those same fears, but then also that baggage. Um, and, and it's interesting that, they have forgotten it, like we do, right? Like, that's all Freud is. Like, there's stuff that's messing with you that is so buried that I need to poke and prod and dissect you to get to it so you can face it. And so I think that that totally was in his mind when he wrote the book. All right, I can... I can... Fight, fight, fight! <laughs> no, I can go with that. No, I think maybe I just didn't see it deep enough until I saw the movie. Maybe I didn't look at it as deeply until I saw the movie do the same thing. Um, Maybe you're not as damaged as an adult as I am, too. I probably am. But the <laughs> the other thing about it that um, that I liked about this newer version, and first of all, you know the the shift to the '80s helps. Um, right. You, you know because you're you're telling it to a to to the audience that you're trying to show it to now. But the other thing that I liked about it is that it felt more authentic as being it could have been any town whereas opposed right. to in the book in the book i definitely feel and and this is in all the books that mention it but Derry definitely feels like its own place and they did a a, a great job in the 1990 miniseries of establishing the fact that Derry is its own place and its own weird place where weird things happen they didn't dwell on that so much in these new movies it was a town where bad things had happened, but they didn't make it feel like it was an outlier. So it felt like it could happen in any place. Yeah, I agree with that. Because, you know, and I think that when you're watching or you're reading a Stephen King thing, you're, you're overly aware of where it's taking place. Um, and until you just said it, I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it does, t- you know, Derry is, um, it, it's almost like it's there nightmare but it could have been happening anywhere else mm-hmm. um and so i think that this movie did that it kind of took a step back from that Stephen king mythology of this strange universe that's in these three or four towns that he he focuses on in, in maine you almost felt like in the book and in the original miniseries like Derry was a place that you could drive around and and if i remember right, right doesn't doesn't the town get destroyed in the book in the book, the entire town gets destroyed. Yeah, but in in this one, it it, it doesn't. It it right. goes it's on and like just it, the house is supposed to be symbolic of like the entire town being destroyed, but the entire town ain't destroyed, right? 
And if I remember right, too, is is the book more like the 1990 miniseries where um, the house on Niebold Street isn't exactly, you know, it's one place where they can go to encounter it, but the final battle happens in the standpipe. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 I can't remember the book as much as the, actually I can remember the book is more than the movie, that they do, the final battle is not the house. I'm trying to even think, do they go through the house in the book? The house is in the book. The house isn't in the 1990 oh. miniseries, I don't believe. Okay. Um, um, so, you know, the, and of course, the house connects to, to me at least, I mean, whenever I see that house, like, not only is that, like, the final um, big thing that kids are scared of, you know what I'm saying, that spooky house down the street, but it totally, to me, connects to um, the Dark Tower. Absolutely. I was thinking the same thing, and that's that's exactly what it is. It's another one of those... Um, Another one of those portals, like what Jake encountered in the Dark Tower movie, uh, but also, you know, that plays out in the Dark Tower stories, which... Which is funny because I'm I'm listening to it on Audible, you know, like when I make dinner now, instead of watching TV, trying to be a good person, you know, as if this is somehow better. And that's the part that I'm in this week, is is the, is the, the, of the, uh, the wasteland, the, all the Jake stuff back in New York. And I was like, the house, yes, the house, and the key, and, and the rose, and all that stuff like that, all of which are in the uh, It Part 2. And the house is in the talisman, too. I mean, in, in, in Black House. I mean, they use that the same idea of that dilapidated house as being the, the portal location. But um, I was just going to bring something up about the about the new movie. Why am I blanking on it? Didn't mean to derail you. Well, no, no, that's fine. It, it's it was um, related to the idea of of using the house as opposed to using the 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 standpipe and the and the sewers as being the place to go to do this. Uh, I can't remember what it was, but anyway, the the other part about this new movie is that, and we we kind of knew it was going to happen because they teased it throughout the movie. We knew the ending was going to be different because they kept talking to Bill Denbrough about how he couldn't write an ending. Right. And and I know that that, you know, that's kind of a criticism of the original book. And, and I thought everything is done. Right. And I but I thought that when they say you can't write an ending, I thought they were like giving a wink and a nod to we're not putting that scene in the movie. You know, the 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 sex scene. But right. But I think in turn, what it really was is it's, it was a, an advance warning that the ending of the movie was going to be completely different than the book. Yeah. First of all, did you think that was overdone? The ending of the movie? Yeah, the whole joke about the ending of the books. I don't think it was overdone. I mean, I think it was enough that it was it was it was funny. Right. And, of course, it's funny when Stephen King is saying it himself. Right. My absolute favorite Stephen King cameo of any of the cameos that he's ever had. Easily, easily. Um, you know, and I think the ending is where this movie fails. Yeah, I, I, it, it's, it's for a three-hour movie, it ends in a whimper. Right. But in, in and the, I, don't, I don't know how you get around that. Like, I don't know if, like, okay... Tim Weisberg, Chris Balzano, go write the ending. I don't know for for a movie for a movie that you want to make five hundred thousand dollars or five hundred million dollars. Like go. I don't know what to do with that ending to make it 
so that it's enjoyable by 15-year-olds and 50-year-olds. I mean, the ending um, made sense, but it was also anticlimactic. Right. So, like, yeah, I it can... turns into an action movie is essentially what happens, you know? Mm-hmm. And who's scared of an action movie? L- looking at it on the surface, like, that's the answer to everything that's going on. Like, that's the answer. If, if somebody went to you and said to you, I have the same problems that these kids have in it. You know, I, I can't make peace with my childhood. I can't make peace. These things damaged me as an adult, uh, as a kid, and it's carried into me being an adult, and I don't know how to overcome that. Like, the ending of the movie is what a therapist would tell you to do. But it just, it doesn't equal out having this, you know, massive storytelling to have it end that way. And also, right. also... I'm pretty sure, aren't there a book series that pretty much says the same thing? <laughs> right. Well, but... Uh, okay, so this will be a little, you know, extra spoiler territory yeah, here. Spoiler extra spoiler territory here, but it, it almost makes it... You, you, you look at it and you say, Eddie died for that? Right. You know, it's, it reminded me of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street... Where ultimately all you have to do is turn your back and be say like, I'm not going to be scared. Right. Like, make it small. I mean, that's, you know, (laughs) oh, really? That's all I had to do? Really? Because that makes, that means my father didn't, you know, molest me or that my parents in the movie didn't die because they were drug addicts or that like I wasn't terrorized by bullies. Like, just make it small. You know, like. Right. Isn't that kind of just saying, like, put it away and forget about it? Isn't it kind of the same thing, which is what damaged them in the first place? Right. And, and, and it doesn't – the problem is it doesn't replace it. So what do you do with that ending? I mean, they, they do a great job of bringing them together, and they're holding hands, and they're chanting together, and they're doing that make it small together. And so is that is something that really should be focused on more. Like, how do you get over your fears? You find someone who helps support you. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. you don't know how to do something. Guess what? Like, your friend does. And you know how to do something they don't. And you unify. And you, like, don't tired of being alone. Find people who also feel lonely and bond over the Smiths. You know, like, it, and so just to make it that, you know, don't sweat the small stuff. Um, and then, you know, have a big battle scene <laughs> before it um, lessened it. I, I mean... You're not going to be able to to satisfy everybody with the ending of really any movie, but particularly, you know, this movie, because you've built up this character as being even more evil than than anybody's ever experienced before in the incarnations of it. But he doesn't get to do a lot of evil things to them or in front of them. Uh, like he does, say, in, in, in the 1990 miniseries, you know, where, like, they, they see him killing the bullies, and, and they're there for that, and they they experience that. And at least in the first part, they found all the other kids, you know, floating in the deadlights and all of that. But there's just, it, it it's almost like by that point, it was just him versus them, and it was almost like he only existed at that point to terrorize them. Right. And he wasn't and this... Well, if you will. Um, you know, and I think it also suffers from the Star Wars factor, you know, because we, like our generation, our age group, um, were terrified 
by the book, maybe more than our parents were. We were more terrified by uh, the movie than probably our parents were. We're definitely more terrified of those than our children are, I think. Right? And so we've built up Pennywise as this ultimate thing. Like this, you know, we, we basically created our own expectations for how good it was going to be because it hit all of our sweet spots, right? And we all have this kind of like <gasps> factor to ours of when we think about when we think about it. And, and and so how do you ever live up to that? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like it's the beautiful girl at the prom that, or the beautiful girl you finally get a date with. Like there's no way she could ever live up to your expectations or how good are the new Star Wars movies going to be? They'll never be as good as you remember the original trilogy being, you know? And so I think that that's a really delicate balance to try to get and you know we probably overhyped it in our in our expectations and in our hearts and minds more than other people did which is why when i was talking to the movie guy i tried to see this three times before i was actually able to see it and i was talking to the movie guy the, the manager and i was like so what are people saying about this and he said stephen king fans like people who read his books don't like it teenagers are not liking it older people are not liking it the only people who seem to like it are nostalgia people Hmm. So I don't know what to break of that, but there it is. Well, they did at least they they gave Stan a bigger reason for his death as opposed to just being a chicken. So there's that. And uh, now right. the talk is that there's going to be there may even be a third movie now uh, because this has done so well and and people are are happy with the way that it's been done. They're talking about doing a prequel that will be more of the story of Pennywise and and some of the stuff that he did. Um, in the previous times that he wreaked havoc on the town. So I, I would actually, I'd go see that. I, I'd be, well, I'd be know, in for of, that. One of the best scenes was that non makeup scene where he's putting it on mm -hmm. and the pictures. And you're like, wow, you never think of like, you think it's just, boop, he pops in, he pops in, he pops in. Like, is there an evolution to this character? Right. Is Mr. Bob gray a real thing? Right. Mm-hmm. And and so, uh, yeah, I'm in. If they're going to do it and if Skarsgård's in it, I'm in. Also, uh, a couple of great things that have gone around the internet lately. Uh, mm -hmm. The photo of Bill Hader when he met Skarsgård and asked him about the CGI that they did to his eyeballs. And Skarsgård proceeds to show him how he actually really does it with his eyeballs. And you see Bill Hader's reaction in the photograph. Oh, my I, word. I haven't seen that. I crack up every time I see that. And then somebody <laughs> recut the opening of Cheers and inserted Pennywise into all of the, the old-timey photos. Okay, both of which are going to be linked <laughs> onto Spooky South Coast in the next, like, 20 minutes? You have to see them. They're both great. Uh, real quick, Chris, we only have about a minute left. Let everybody know about Tripping on Legends and how they can uh, catch it. Uh, sure. Uh, Tripping on Legends is a podcast I do where we go out and we look for and track down the meaning of local Florida legends and what they mean to you or no matter where you live. Um, best place to get it is on Facebook. Actually, that's kind of become the, the dumping ground for everything, which is facebook.com backslash tripping on legends. Or you can go to the website, which is tripping on legends.wordpress.com. Um, just type in tripping on legends or my name and you're going to find it. And it's, uh, you know, we've kind of changed the format of the show a little bit. Um, so I'm interested to see what people think about it. But, you know, if you're interested in in the local lore of your town, you're going to see it in one of the legends we explore in Florida. So it's definitely worth a listen. All right. Well, until next week, everybody, stay spooktacular.